Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another edition of The Christian Contrarian. I'm Gary Wayne, author of The Genesis 6 Conspiracy, and this is episode 37, The Serpent Seed, part 4, The Spiritual Way of Cain. You know, I wasn't initially looking to do a part 4 in this series, but in retrospect, I probably should have anticipated to do it. So today's part is going to focus on New Testament passages that are brought in to argue in favor of the serpent seed as being Cain as the offspring of Satan. And again, you know, for the record, I'm not against Cain being the seed or the offspring of Satan. But what I am concerned about is how Scripture is used to make the case when it's taking by its direction in terms of the application in that support, taking Scripture out of its meaning and out of its context. So that's the concern I have with it. And if I could prove Cain as being the son of Satan scripturally, I would put it on record, but for me, I can't. So even though I'm not against the notion, I can't make the case, but it's how scripture gets sort of manipulated in the process that concerns me. And so I've decided to do part four. And just for a quick summary for people, in part one, we did, or I covered off Genesis uh, 4 and the lineage and the arguments for the lineage of Cain not being listed with Abel, which of course is wrong. And if you want to go back and listen to part one, would be very, very good. Just as part two dealt with the applications and the meanings and the changed meanings of some of the word, key words that were in Genesis 3, as in fruit, as in beguiled, as in desire, as in pleasant, to be used in a sexual way, which is completely out of context with the narrative. And I'll have something at the end in terms of what I'll read for you if you were to apply that. And you'll see how that absolutely doesn't make any sort of sense. And then part three, I dealt with the Nakash and Satan and the aspect that Cain is not listed in Scripture as a giant or a Nephilim. And so part four now is going to go on to discuss New Testament passages that are brought in. And it's important to note before we enter into that, that nowhere in the Eden account does it say Satan. So Satan is overlaid onto the word serpent as what it will be when we get into particularly 2 Corinthians chapter 11 today. But understand that what we left part 3 at was essentially that Satan in Ezekiel 28 was in his cherubic form, as the anointed cherubim, not in his seraphic form. And nowhere is there any detailing in Genesis 3 that the serpent is actually Satan. And that it wasn't Satan who was punished in terms of losing its intelligence and losing his, his limbs and being forced to cr uh, crawl on the ground. So I want to lay that sort of out as, as a premise that we don't get scripture that actually has Satan in his seraphic form in Eden. 
So when we move to the New Testament, to the New Testament, we do get the word serpent as it's used in Second Corinthians eleven three that we're going to deal with a few some few of the other words in there in a few minutes. But I want to deal with the word serpent that's in there, where the serpent beguiled serpents. Eve was beguiled by the serpents uh, through its sub subtlety, and the word serpent comes from the Greek word ophus, and it can mean serpent, it can mean snake, and what's interesting in the New Testament, it says it can be a figurative for a cunning person and especially Satan. So we have to be open to the idea that the serpent could mean Satan, but we also need to look at scriptural examples to see how that sort of plays out. And what's also interesting is in Genesis 3, where you get the, the serpent, which is the Nakash, or the Nahash, depending on how you want to pronounce that, nowhere in the definition does it say Satan is the serpent. In, in other words, in, in the Nakash definition, it doesn't link Satan with the serpent, only for the serpent being uh, throughout the Old Testament. And I'm going to come back to that as well. So, but that's important to understand when we do look at when in the New Testament that Satan is connected to the old serpent as he's described in Revelation 12 and in 20. So it's used twice in essentially the same sort of format that he is the old serpent and old will go back to uh, a Greek word that means right to the beginning as an origin. So he's an ancient serpent as he's known and and this also you know sort of links him into being in part seraphim so we have to deal with this and i think revelation 12 is, is a good place to start with it and he's called uh, the old serpent and he's called the dragon which again is a word for a seraphim just as in 12 3 he's called the red dragon when red being uh, a Greek word that is used to describe fiery red in the color of fire, just as seraphim worked before the burning stones, before the altar as ministers for, for God in, in, in heaven. So again, he's in part cherubim and he's in part seraphim and a few other parts to him as well that we're not going to cover here today. But what I really want to sort of lay out is when he is called a serpent, you get these other descriptions that also calls him a devil and Satan. So there's no doubt whatsoever that these terms are referring to Satan in that set of passages, but only in Revelation 12 and in Revelation 20. And in Revelation 12, 15 and 17, we understand when we get serpent and dragon that it is the devil and Satan that is going after Judah and then turns on all those who follow the word of God. So we get clear sort of, uh, what I guess what I'm saying is we get clear specificity that there is no doubt as to what the meaning of the serpent or the dragon is. And a dragon in antiquity was a flying serpent. So understand that those, those, those are very, very important understanding. But we don't get that 
clarification anywhere else in the New Testament where serpent is used that you can clearly say it is the devil unless you overlay that. And in all the applications outside of Revelation 12 and 20, serpent seems to be more applicable, and I think factually so, as a serpent being. Now, we don't get Satan as called a serpent anywhere in the, in the Old Testament, but let's also get the seraphim idea back on the table again, just so that we can sort of bookend the two arguments of the two testaments that they are in perfect consistency, which is what we have to remember because, because the Bible does work in perfect harmony. So in Isaiah 6, that's where you get the seraphim angels, which are six-winged, fiery, serpent-faced angels that work before the altar in God. And we get some other applications where you get fiery serpent, as in Isaiah 14, 29, for example, where you get the, the actual word of uh, the, you know, uh, you get a series of serpentine words along with fiery serpent. And fiery is that word seraph that seraphim is rooted in, which means basically fire. And so we get that in Isaiah 14, 29, and it likely does mean a seraphim angel, but the trouble is even there, Satan is not named. So we can't specifically say which of the seraphim order that Isaiah 14, 29 is referring to. It could be one of many of the seraphim watchers that Isaiah 14, 29 is talking about. Or in um, Isaiah where it talks about the Leviathan and in Job where it relates Leviathan to be the dragon and this is the dragon and the tannum beast that's going to be destroyed in the end time. It could be Satan. It could be another aspect of Satan, but we don't get the word Satan used with it. So we can speculate that Leviathan actually might be the the dragon that slayed in, in, in the end time, except that we have Satan who doesn't get slayed in the end time. He goes to the abyss and then to the lake of fire. So depending on how you want to look at the size of the time of the end time, whether or not that, that fits or not. But I'll, I'll leave that. That's another rabbit hole. So, um, so as we look at uh, the applications for serpent and Satan, both New Testament and Old Testament, we only get Satan with serpent in the book of Revelation in chapter 12 and, and chapter 20. So as we roll that forward to 2 Corinthians 11.3 then, and I'll just re reword the line that is the passage that is used to support the serpent seed being uh, the son of, Cain being the son of Satan. It says, Eve beguiled by serpents, by the serpent's sub subtlety. So we're going to look at subtlety and beguiled and understanding that it doesn't say serpent, or it doesn't say Satan, it says serpent. So, and it, you know, and the argument is, is that's an allegory for Satan. So let's see what the context of the verse actually says. So the first thing that you notice is beguiled and subtlety is the same words that are used in Greek translated into English, which are the same words essentially, or parallel words, I guess would be a better way of saying it, of the Hebrew wording that's in Genesis 3. So we get a same relaying. The question is, is 
what is this Satan and did they have sex? So let's look at the word beguiled, which is a word that uh, can be also translated in Hebrew as it comes out of Genesis 3 uh, to, uh, to desire or to be seduced, but seduced morally is the definition that is in uh, the Old Testament. And the same goes for the New Testament, and that's the word expatel. And it means to seduce wholly, as in deceive. Doesn't it say anything about sex? To deceive wholly. And it derives from a, another word, apatel, which means cheat deceive and or beguile, just as you have beguiled using. So you get the root and the extended word as it's used in 2 Corinthians 11 as being to deceive, nothing to do with sex. And that word apateo is going to come back up as we look at a supporting verse uh, in 1 Timothy 2. And so when we look at expateo, it's used four times in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 3.18, in Romans 7.11, in Romans 16.18, in 2, Timothy, uh, 2 Thessalonians 2.3. And in all of those applications, it means to deceive. It has nothing to do with sex. So if this word has to do with sex, we should get an application and or a meaning where it says there's sex involved allegorically or otherwise. We don't get that. And not only in those other four chapters that I just, or four verses that I, I, I laid out, does it say to deceive or to beguile, as in deceived by the worldly wisdom and from being wise from, deceived from being wise of the worldly wisdom. This is very, very similar to what the Nakash does. That is using subtlety and cunning to deceive Eve using that seven sacred sciences and the art of rhetoric and the knowledge of the world which is corrupt to deceive Eve to eat of the fruit of the forbidden tree. So very, very similar to the Nakash, which you know testifies more towards the serpent being Nakash because this is a being that was punished where Satan wasn't punished. And Nakash is a serpent. And the second word is subtlety, which is panaguria, or panagurias, as some people pronounce it, which means trickery, false wisdom, craftiness, just as the Nakash was a crafty, cunning animal. And it means sophistry in Greek, which is, we need to understand that Sophia was the goddess of wisdom of this world, and philosophy is the theology of polytheism and secularism, and philosophy breaks down as philo as being love in Greek, and Sophia, the goddess of wisdom of the Gnostics, is being wisdom. So it's the love of Sophia, the love of wisdom. This is a polytheist term for the cult of knowledge that is being communicated by the Ophis serpent animal being than a cash as opposed to Satan. And we get the word panaguria, which is the word subtlety that we're talking about used in Luke 20, uh, verse 23 in 2 Corinthians 4, 2 and Ephesians 
4.14, again used in the context and the meaning for crafty for tempting, crafty for deceitfulness, cunning craftiness of men to deceive. This is the worldly wisdom and the knowledge that the serpent was using against Eve to deceive her to eat of the tree of the fruit of the forbidden tree, not to have sex. Nowhere in there is the word sex. Nowhere in the translations, nor in the meanings, nor in the applications, no allegories, no sex. And further, in 2 Corinthians 11.3, Paul says about Eve being beguiled by the serpent's subtlety, he is concerned that Christians will be deceived like Eve was and that will be corrupting our minds, not corrupting our physical sexuality, but corrupting our minds. So Paul clarifies the meaning of what was recorded in Genesis. So to me, it's perfectly clear that this is the deception by corrupting our minds with worldly wisdom that Eve was deceived by, which we need to be on guard that we're not deceived in, in this world for. And in 1 Timothy 2.13, it supports 2 Corinthians 11.3 as being deceived and not sex because against the word deceived in that passage comes from the word apateo, which is the root for expateo, and that means to deceive into, and Eve was deceived into eating the fruit as that passage would set out. And you get the same applications for apateo in Ephesians 5, 6, and 126. So again, the Bible is perfectly consistent, whether it's translating out of Greek into English and or Hebrew into English, it is perfectly consistent, providing the translation is translated correctly. And in this case, I think, I think it's been done quite well. So when we look at um, the next argument that people bring in, it's usually in 1 John 3 or John 8. And this is where people will say, well, this points directly to Cain being Satan's son. But it really doesn't. So we're going to walk through that as well. And I'm going to start with 1 John 3 because you need that to really understand John 8. And it's very, very important. So in John 3.12, it talks about Cain was of the wicked one. And he slew his brother Abel who was righteous. And these are loaded with important words here. Of the wicked one is where people say, well, of the wicked one means the offspring. Well, let's have a look at the application in the words again. So it says in the same verse, in the next sentence in 3.12, we get some context. And we'll get more as we walk through this. But it says, Cain was of the wicked one and slew his brother because Cain's works were of evil and Abel's were of righteousness. So we need to understand that this is an allegory that's going on in a spiritual allegory and a spiritual way as a spiritual follower. So it's setting down the context that 
Cain was of the evil one, of the devil, in a spiritual sense, and was a spiritual offspring. And that's going to become clear as we walk through the further context. So in John 1 John 3, 8, it says, Those who sin are of the devil. And the devil sinned from the beginning, which is really going to match up well in John 8. And he sinned before Eden, from the beginning. So... Satan didn't fall in Eden. He, he, he fell somewhere before and he was there probably coaching or avataring the Nakash, but he's not physically having sex and he doesn't physically uh, deceive Eve in Eden. And Jesus comes also, we're told in 3.8, to destroy the works of the devil. So evil, sin, murder are the works of the devil. And in John 3, 9, it says, Whoever does sin is, a, is of the devil, and who is, whoever does righteousness is of God. So when it says that he is of the wicked one, that means he's doing the works of the devil. Okay? And we get a clarification on this as a spiritual understanding in verse 23 and 24 of 1st John 3 and it says those who keeps God commandments have a spirit in them and therefore they are you know manifested as the offspring spiritual offspring of God for doing righteousness or manifested as the spiritual offspring for doing sin evil and murder so there's no physical offspring in there this is a spiritual allegory and a spiritual following in terms of whether you're doing righteousness or you're doing evil. So when we move over to John 8 then, and the supporters of Cain being the offspring of, Sa of, of Satan physically, will use 841 and 844 to make their argument. And again, at first look, it sounds a little bit convincing unless you look at the context and you look at what 1 John 3 is talking about. But... This is being addressed to the Pharisees as being from the, their father, the devil. And by implication, all of the Judean people who are following the Pharisees. Well, clearly that's at odds with the genealogies, both in the Old Testament, that takes us up to, to Noah in Genesis 5, and beginning in Genesis 4, as we covered in part 1, but also in the New Testament, where you get the genealogies from Abraham down to Jesus. And from Luke, you get the same genealogy that's uh, given to us in, in Genesis chapter 5. So by implication, the Judeans are of the devil. And then by implication, Jesus would be. So you can see where you want to be really careful as to how you're applying these passages. Because it opens up Pandora's, Pandora's box... And I don't use that lightly because that's really the position of the Gnostics. So we want to be careful that we're not falling for the crafty cunningness of the cult of knowledge of Gnosticism. And so if we look now for the context and we move into John 8.36, and Jesus clearly says that the Jewish people, including the Pharisees, were born as descendants of Abraham. So he's putting that on the record. 
And in 33 and 39, the Pharisees state two times that they are the seed of Abraham. So from a physical sense, from both sides of the argument that's going back and forth, we know they're the physical seed. By implication and by context and the wording that we're going to get into now, being of the father and the offspring of the devil is allegorical as in that spiritual nature that we've talked about in 1 John 3. So, as we dig a little bit deeper in and, and start digging down now towards the context, let's look at 1 John 8, 41 and 44 in the context of the whole chapter. And starting in, in 34 and understanding that we've got three passages that are clearly saying the physical uh, offspring of Abraham are the Pharisees and the Judeans and that would include Jesus. So 834. Who does, it says, wherever, whoever does sin serves sin. And the sin is of the devil as we talked about in 1 John 3, 8 of the wicked one. And further it says in, in uh, 1 John 3, 8, this is why Jesus was manifested into the world to destroy the works of this devil. So whoever does sin in, does sin in verse 34, serves sin. And sin, his father is the devil because he sinned from the beginning and was a murderer from the beginning. And this is very, very important. Not only sin and a liar, but a murderer from the beginning, particularly in the context that we're gonna talk about. So in John 8, 39 then, Jesus says if Abraham would do uh, as says that if Abraham would do as if you were of Abraham you would do as Abraham does sorry for for fumbling that and in 840 it also says and the Pharisees are trying to kill Jesus so when we put that together is they are spiritually the offspring of the devil they and, and figuratively called their father because they're doing the works of the devil and if they were doing the works and the righteousness of Abraham they wouldn't be trying to kill Jesus. And part of the works of the devil, he's a murderer from the beginning. So the context is becoming clear. And in verse 44, it says, just as, 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 as the devil was a murderer from the beginning, they, the Pharisee, do the deeds of the Father and they do the lusts of the devil. As you go from 40 through 44, you get that pulled out. So they're doing the works of the devil. They are of the wicked one, as First John talks about, but not the physical seed, because the genealogies in the, in the Bible are not there to support that. Thus, in John 3, 8 to 10, it says those who are righteous, like Abel, are of God. And those who do evil and sin are of the devil. And therefore, allegorically, their father is the devil. And then in John 8, 47, it says, The Pharisees did not hear the words of God because they're spiritually of, of, not of God, but of the devil. And they were there to try and kill Jesus, who, again, that is the father who created murder from the beginning, lies and sin as well. And so they, the Pharisees did the works of, of the devil. And that's how the 
children of the devil are manifested by doing the works of the devil. So hopefully I was clear on that. As I said, it gets, it's, it gets complicated. The handout for part four will walk through that clearly with you. But I all wanted to close with Genesis 3.6. And the three words in there that are changed in the meanings, and of course you've got uh, a few other words, as I talked about in part two, that they're trying to re-identify with a possible meaning. But the problem is they don't fit with context within the sentence or in the narrative. They actually contradict it. So I thought I would read 3.6 and then refinish those words, re replace the words pleasant, desired, and fruit and let you get an understanding of what I'm talking about. So Genesis 3.6, and when the women saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and the tree to be desired, lusted at, to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and did eat and also unto her husband with her and he did eat. And so if we replace that now with, with the changed meanings, here's, the, here's some of the interesting conundrums that you're going to get into. So it says, and the woman saw that the tree was good for food, conundrum number one, and that it was pleasant. Now we're going to say, and the food was desirable or covetous to the eyes, so sexually. And the tree was to be desired, and we're going to replace that with lusted after. So, and the tree was to be lusted after to make one wise. So, what we're hearing is, is that they're going to covet the food, the fruit, which is the food, and you're going to desire after a tree. So, the implication is to have sex with a tree, and you have to ignore to make one wise. And then it says she took... The fruit, and we're going to replace that now with she took the seed, the child, or the offspring thereof, and did eat. So saying that she ate the offspring, if you do that. And of course, you have to replace eat with have sex, which you can't because there's no application in the Bible, literally or allegorically, where eating is having sex. And we covered that in part three. But it would say, and to, she took the. She took the seed, the child, and did eat and had sex and gave also unto her husband and then he would have eaten of had, and had sex. So it absolutely butchers the true meaning for Genesis 3.6. So just let it read literally. And if you want the handouts on this on all, all four, I've got that. Just get a hold of me through my website, the Genesis6Conspiracy.com. That's the number 6Conspiracy.com. And till next time, be be blessed and do blessed things in the world. Amen.